Support for this episode of Sage Aging comes from Polk Elder Care Guide. Designed with families in mind, Polk Elder Care Guide gives you the tools and education necessary to make quality choices about senior care and living options in Polk County, Florida. Available in both English and Spanish, you can view the guides and much more online at polkeldercare.com. Are you a baby boomer whose kids are grown, leaving you with more house than you need? Have you been thinking lately that it may be time to right-size your living situation? Would you love to design your neighborhood to be exactly what you want it to be? If you're a baby boomer exploring housing options, then this podcast episode is for you. I'm Liz Craven, and like so many others, I face the overwhelming task of being a caregiver for people that I hold dear. I understand how tough the day-to-day of a caregiver can be and how hard it is to come by good information. Here's one thing I know for sure. Education is key. Equipped with the right tools and good information, caregivers will experience less stress and find better balance in day-to-day life. For the past two decades, I've built my career on connecting older adults and those who care for them to the education and resources they need to navigate the aging journey. This show is dedicated to the same. Welcome to the Sage Aging Podcast. Hit subscribe now and let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Sage Aging Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Craven. The baby boomer generation, 73 million strong, are entering the 65 plus age group at a rate of 10,000 per day in the United States. By the year 2030, all baby boomers will have joined the 65 plus club, placing a lot of stress on the senior housing industry. So what does senior housing of the future look like, and what changes are coming to accommodate the rapidly growing need? A 30-minute podcast episode isn't nearly enough time to tackle that question entirely, but today we're going to talk about a lesser-known option called co-housing. Co-housing communities bring together the value of private homes and the advantages of shared public space. My guest today is Gail Bagley. A retiree living in Lakeland, Florida, Gail has dreamed of living in a cooperative communal type arrangement for decades, and she's the founding member of Friends and Neighbors Co-Housing LLC. To learn more about Gail and all the great things she's involved in, be sure to check the links section of the show notes for this episode, which you can find on the blog post for episode nine at sageaging.us. Hi, Gail. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Oh, hi, Liz. This is so exciting. Thank you. 
I'm so excited to have you because this is a topic that is just not widely known, and I'm happy to be able to put some information out there about it and help people to get a bit educated. You know, maybe it's something that will spark an interest. That'd be wonderful. It'd be uh, mutually beneficial to them and to uh, all of us, really, to make the world a better place. Absolutely. But before we get started, you know that I like to do a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a few get to know you questions. Are you good with that? Oh, sure. Thank you. Okay. So your first question is, what is your favorite day of the week? That would be Friday, because I usually try to keep Friday open as much as possible with the fewest amount of free commitments. So then I can look at my Friday calendar and say, wow, I, I have some free time here. Okay, second question, dawn or dusk? Dawn, and it makes me think of um, when I used to do a lot more camping, like tent camping, waking up to the dawn is so refreshing. Not so much when you live in a house, but when you're camping, dawn is awesome. The early bird gets the worm. Okay, now here's a good one, cake or pie? That is a good one. Pie almost sounds like it could be healthy because you can put fruit in it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll go with pie. Yeah, I've got, you got your apples and cherries. It's, it's good. I think my favorite pie is probably apple, but I don't leave it so healthy. I like to drizzle some caramel on top as well. Yeah, but don't even talk about that. <laughs> okay, last question, because we have to work off the pie that we've just eaten. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, rate your dancing moves. All right, this is embarrassing. Uh, dancing moves. I would give myself, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 for enthusiasm and 2 for ability. So you have to env envision that yourself. That's probably about 90% of people for real. Oh. <laughs> I think as long as you're feeling it and you're, you've got your groove, you're good to go. Oh, yeah. In my head, it is what it is. That's right. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Of course. Well, thank you for playing with me. I really enjoy that. I think that's probably my favorite part of the show because <laughs> it kind of releases some of that personality. It's hard to see that through audio. And I think it gives people an opportunity to feel who we are a little bit. Oh, that's great. All right. So on to our topic, co-housing. I have to be honest that before you brought this topic to my attention a few years ago, I had never heard of co-housing. Can you kind of give us a brief definition of what it is and where it came from? I'm so glad that you asked that early on, because when people hear the word co-housing, I can almost see the gears in their head making up their own definition so that whatever, if they're asking me what co-housing is and I'm telling them, they've already decided that it looks like something that they've preconceived. So co-housing communities are collaborative. They're neighborhoods that are collaborative and they combine private homes with extensive common areas. They create a very strong and successful housing development. Most co-housing communities are organized legally as townhouse or condominium developments with a homeowners association. What their intent is, is to create, um, cultivate a strong sense of community through the extensive common facilities and active collaboration of the residents. They're the ones that create it and they're in charge. That's co-housing. It's private homes with extensive common facilities developed by the residents. 
That's pretty incredible. I love the part that it's created by the residents that kind of gives you the opportunity as a group to make a community exactly what you want it to be. Exactly. So where did this co-housing begin? Is that something that's new or have we seen it in other places and people just aren't aware of it? If you want to just look at the recent history of co-housing, Charles Durrett and his wife, Katie McCammett, back in the 70s, they had their education at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and they studied architecture. And they observed while they were walking to and from their apartment to their classes that Denmark had been creating subsidized housing, meaning large boxes for people, families to live in. And uh, they weren't much to brag about. They were technically homes in boxes. But one day, Chuck was walking to class. Well, actually, every day when he was walking to class, there was one particular building that had activity. People were living, doing their activities, family activities between the buildings. So he stopped and asked, you know, what is different about your building here? And they said, we don't like these warehouses that they've created for people to live. So we've added our own activities and we call it, and they use this word in Danish that he said, well, that's like co-housing. So when uh, Chuck and Katie came back home to the U.S., which was in California, they said, let's try building something like that because now we have the architectural education and we've seen something that we'd really like to model. So they built the first co-housing community, designed it. It was called, it is still in existence, called Muir Commons after John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, M-U-I-R, Muir Commons in California. And, you know, you can imagine that since 19, I'll just say 19, by the time they probably finished it, it was about 1980. Since then, they've developed many more. And you can imagine how much better they've gotten with each new go-round. But when you, when you said, is it a new concept? When you think about the way we live now, single-family homes, that's really the new concept. And it's not really working for a lot of people because we've got this isolation. People that don't know their neighbors, they have homes with garages in the front and garage door openers, and they open the garage door, they disappear inside, and they close the garage door behind them. And they that's a new, not-so-successful model of housing. Go back and think of ancient cultures where they depended on each other for survival and building their families and their communities. So, you know, Native Americans and ancient Egyptians and all these ancient cultures that that was normal. And then we created this thing called single family homes in suburbia. And wow, that's really different. So it's old and it's new. It's trying to fix a problem that we've created in single family homes and making a good old fashioned neighborhood. So why is senior co-housing relevant now? What do you see that is changing that might spark interest in this type of living? Do you mind if I sort of answer the why senior co-housing? Mm-hmm. Katie and Chuck, when they first developed the first co-housing community, was multi-generational. And it proved to be a wonderful way to raise children in a very healthy, you know, takes-a-village environment. And so senior co-housing is sort of a new spinoff from that. So why create a co-housing community that's geared for seniors? You could get a lot of feedback on that that would be like, I don't want to live around a bunch of old people. Well, I don't either. So senior co-housing, <laughs> <laughs> senior co-housing fills a niche for, I'll just say, healthy, educated, proactive adults who want to live in a socially and environmentally vibrant community. It's not geared for people who really their next step is into assisted living. 
for me, the time is right now. I'm able to do something about this. I'm able to help create it. It's a very cooperative environment. It's not created by a developer. It's created by the people. So that's why it takes people that are able to contribute. But it allows seniors to have a community that favors our needs. The things that when I turn 60, I know it's hard to believe I'm 60. I'm way over 60 now. But when I when I turned 60, I had almost like a light went off. And I said, I, I need to start doing things differently because the rest of my life will depend on how I do things now, how I take care of myself, uh, how I plan for that. I, that's when I learned about co-housing. And I thought, I don't have to invent this. This has already been done, thanks to Katie McCammon and Chuck Durrett. So I started reading the books. But co-housing geared for seniors enables people that are my age to now focus. I don't have kids and grandchildren, but people that do may feel like, well, I've already done that. You know, I really don't want to be around help raising other people's young children at this point. I'd really like to focus on me. Children are very welcome in a senior co-housing community. It's child-friendly, but you can focus when you have meetings, for example, you're not always talking about the playground. You're talking about your yoga classes, Friday night's wine hour, or two or three hours, whatever it is. But you can focus (laughs) on the things that you want to do as an adult and do them the way that you always wanted to do them. Having a smaller, I call it a right-sized home, or you could say downsized home, can help reduce maintenance and overhead costs. A lot of us raised our families in a single-family home. The children have moved out, and now we're still in our single-family home do we really need that? And do we really want to live in all this space that we had when we were raising the children? So that's part of why there's senior co-housing. And it's a small, newer niche, and it's being very, very successful. But you asked uh, about its relevance now. And two things that I think of when you ask that question is, baby boomers are different. And I think a lot of our listeners who are baby boomers will agree that we don't really want to do things the way that our parents did things in terms of retirement. I watched a lot of my parents' aged people dream about, well, they first of all, they had a career that lasted their entire adult working career. They stayed in one company. They had all the benefits. They raised their family with the main breadwinner, the dad. They got a gold watch, and they retired and started playing golf or moved to Florida. And that was the dream of a lot of people that were my parents' age. Baby boomers, not so much looking for a different new way to live life more fully and more independently. So that's one reason why this is relevant now. But wow, this pandemic Mm -hmm. has really done a job on how we look at ourselves and how we look at our communities. And you know, and I know how dangerous isolation is for people as they get older. Yes. Um, The pandemic has really made us look around to see how much we need each other especially when we can't get to each other or don't have the luxury, the things that we counted on, we took for granted as I happen to have a very close relationship with my neighbors and the pandemic has really sealed it. We have cocktail hour in my carport, six, six feet of separation. Every, I love it. Every Friday uh, afternoon, evening, but we really are bonding. And in between those Fridays, you know, we're out in the street talking to each other, we're sharing things. So the pandemic has another reason why it's looking like things will be different in the future. We will be much more tuned into the need for community. Well, and I think that people are recognizing also that it really is up to us. We have to be the architect of our future. We can't just rely on what's there. Because frankly, 
What is in place now has to change. Not that it has to go away, but there's simply no way to accommodate that quote unquote gray tsunami that's coming in our direction. And so looking at different ways of doing things is going to have to be a part of the equation. And I think this is a great way for people who, like you said, still are independent and want to design their lifestyle in such a way that it fits exactly what they want and need. It's a great option. Yeah, that's a good point, Liz. That's so true. How does that process happen? Because I went online to see where does co-housing currently exist for seniors? And I found not really that much. I found the bulk of it in California, which makes sense after you explained how it came to the states, Uh, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Oregon, Virginia, but not really super relevant everywhere else. Is that a lack of information or is it just that people haven't decided to undertake that responsibility to create one in their area. So one of the things um, I'm involved in, a it's called the SAGE Senior Co-Housing Advocates Board, which Charles Durrett is on, and some of the people that are on this board live in California. One of my um, uh, friends on the board lives in Pasadena, California. And she, she said, you don't understand why it's not already there. In some areas, it, I think people are just used to their single-family homes and they don't want to rock the boat. There in Florida is one co-housing community in Gainesville, and it's multi-generational, technically. I met these people at a co-housing conference uh, last year, and they're all my age. <laughs> but they call it multi-generational, and they're trying to attract growing families. That's interesting. Yeah, there could be an affordability thing. Uh, it's it's not easy for people that are raising young children to gather the resources to build a new home in a co-housing community. Some of them are retrofitted from, you know, if they're trying to make it more affordable, get a downtown, I don't know, like a warehouse or something like that and convert it to urban co-housing. <clears throat> but most of them are built new construction. But your question was, how was it created, I think, right? Yeah, well, what's the process in creating a co-housing community? A brief overview, start to finish, how does one get started? So all of them are created starting with, it's now called a burning soul. Somebody like me that says, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? It takes patience and persistence and a sense of, I think, organization and attracting people with different kinds of talents to bring in. So I'm the burning soul. There's the educating the community. Then you grow membership and you create a membership process. You get people on board. They pay a membership fee and then they start learning about what co-housing is. They start learning about what it's going to take to get to the place where they're going to be actually living in a home in the community. So it involves things that we've already done here, which is uh, setting up a legal entity, which is friends and neighbors, co-housing LLC, getting a bank account, hiring an attorney, starting to get your professional team on board, looking at interviewing architects and builders and the kind of team that you need to do all the professional aspects of it. You definitely, as a group, need to continually learn and develop a governance process. You create a governance process where when you have a meeting together to talk about the business of your community, most of the time it's a consensus type of a result where you want everybody to be happy with the result. You build a lot of trust. Before anything is ever built, maybe even before you have the property cleared, your people 
are already a community. They're now studying how this governance process works. Because once you get in the community, you don't have time for learning that maybe you weren't really suitable for this. So then you have uh, design workshops, got your architect on board, your builder on board, you build, and then you live the dream. And I would say the very successful ones that hired the necessary consultants and had their governance building early on, take about two full years before they say, let's do this, and they, they move in. About two years, two or three years. Wow. So how is your project going? Well, I learned from my mistakes. I think it was about 2014, I said, wow, I'm gonna, I need to actually do something about this. That's when I started reading and studying and visiting and going to the conferences and meeting other people, doing presentations and trying to get interest in that. But I had developed a membership process that was ineffective where I'm aiming now is to attract people that are actually willing and able to invest in this in all the ways you can imagine, invest emotionally, invest time-wise, and, and eventually invest in the building of the community. So um, right now, <laughs> right now with social isolation, not a very good time to be meeting with people. For about a year, we had monthly coffees over at Hillcrest Coffee Shop, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were interested. And um, I found a lot of people interested but unable. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. I see this as being, I'll just say urban. You and I sort of live in the same part of town where, wow, I love living here. I love being able to walk around Florida Southern College. I love being able to be very close to the museum and the library. I envision a community near downtown that you can easily walk. Think about age-friendly Lakeland and being able to get around the pillars, right? The eight? The domains. Domains. Mm -hmm. All those things need to equal senior co-housing. You need to be able to walk around feel safe, feel like you belong. And that's where we are right now. We're sort of in a stall period because of social distancing, but ready to resume the um, membership drive and get back out there and start looking at property. Well, that's really exciting. And you're right that co-housing really does follow the patterns of age-friendly communities. And for the sake of the audience who may not know what that means, age-friendly communities is a project of the World Health Organization and AARP, where they place focus on the eight domains of livability in making a community age-friendly. I'll put some information in the links for the show notes for you. And I've actually got an episode about age-friendly communities planned coming up not too far down the road. So be on the lookout for that. But it's an amazing program. And this really does apply the same principles about having an age-friendly community. What are some good examples that you've found of the type of community that you've seen in senior co-housing? Good question. Uh, The first senior co-housing community that I ever saw was in North Carolina, and it's called Elderberry, and it was under construction. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and I thought, how can this work? Because this is really out in the middle of nowhere. I don't think my cell phone worked. And the woman who showed me around first took me into her home, which they were like two-story duplexes. She said, this is my mother. Her mother was in a a lovely little reading area. She said, my mom is 100, and uh, she's very happy here. And I thought, wow, 
what happens when mom needs medical care, maybe emergency. So I'm telling you that story because that was what I would consider rural senior co-housing. And then I visited in Port Townsend, Washington, up near the Puget Sound area, there is a very new, I would say, state-of-the-art senior co-housing community. And I've been there, I uh, studied it, and it's called Quimp- Quimper Village uh, Senior Co-housing. And they did it perfectly. But they were able to find six acres. That's a really big challenge, but they did a great job. They found six beautiful acres, and they created, uh, they were sort of, single stories, and they're very close to downtown. And their downtown, Port Angeles, is very senior friendly. So that, that's a whole different look and vibe and how they did it, the quality of the buildings, the quality of the, the whole community. Quimper Village is like my role model. Well, shortly after I saw Quimper Village and decided it was the best ever, I was able to go to a co-housing conference in Portland, Oregon last year, and a brand spanking new senior co-housing community called PDX, which is the Portland airport code PDX. PDX Commons is a brand new senior co-housing community in downtown Portland, Oregon. And it was built on, I think they said three quarters of an acre. Oh, It's three stories. The first story when you walk in is the garage level. And it's hard to describe this, but the interior was the common area. So if you went up the elevator and got up at the third floor and looked in, you would see the courtyard common area. They have parties there, and you walk right in from the common area to the common house, which is integrated architecturally into the building. So these are three different, very different kinds of senior co-housing communities. One's rural, one's suburban, one's urban. They're all very successful. They can be attached buildings or they can be standalone buildings. A lot of people immediately, I can see the gears in their head. They're going, oh, tiny houses, tiny houses. (laughs) I've never been to a co-housing community of any type, multi-generational or senior, that was actual tiny houses. They're usually uh, 900 to 1,500 square feet. That's about the average. And each co-housing community has approximately 20-something residences. That that might help give you a better idea of how big or small this is and what it looks like. Because I do want to kind of paint a picture of what it looks like, and I, I hope that helps a little bit. Absolutely. Here's a question that pops into my head. When somebody is living in co-housing and the time comes that they need to move on to a different scenario, maybe to assisted living or a situation that allows for them to have more assistance when they have trouble being on their own. What happens to their home? Can they sell it? Or is that something that's subject to group rules? Oh, that's a great question. And most co-housing communities, whether they're senior co-housing or multi-generational co-housing communities, these are private homes that are for sale on the open market. Most of the very successful co-housing communities integrate some sort of a system where they have a waiting list. People are, they're already pre-marketing. They're already saying, come to our community and look. If there's an opening, if there's a house for sale, you will be on a list, but you'll already know us. You will already been, have been to some of our meetings, some of our work days, some of our common meals. Co-housing communities optimally are neighborhoods within the greater neighborhood, community within the greater community. They are friendly with their neighbors surrounding them and people in the community get to know them and say, wow, this is a great place to live. It's not for everybody, but for the ones that can really contribute and appreciate it, they already know about a co-housing community and they might already be on a waiting list to get in. 
most of them, they're sold by the owner to another private owner. But a lot of them in the community, they're already pre-marketing them as a part of the community. But you asked a question that makes me want to get into a slightly different aspect of that, which is there is not a service available for care in a co-housing community. It's not a nursing facility. One of the things you can do in senior co-housing, the common house, which is usually approximately three or 4,000 square feet and integrates a beautiful custom kitchen, you know, room for having yoga classes, but they also have guest rooms there. So if you live in a 1,000 square foot home, you might not have room for a lot of company. So your guests can stay in the uh, common house guest rooms. You might, as a community, decide to add another guest room and have down the road when you all get older, a CNA live there at a much reduced rate. And that CNA could be sort of shared and help take care of a few of you. And you can help take care of each other. Everybody, you know, you can imagine we all age at different rates, different ways. I can help my neighbors get to doctor's appointments. And what the research on senior co-housing is finding is that seniors that live in co-housing, whether it's multi-generational or senior co-housing, live healthier and they thrive more and they're less likely to end up in a facility as early as other people. And when they do go into an assisted living facility, they have a lot of people visiting them. They're old neighbors. Oh, the relationships are there. So where would somebody go to get more information and learn more about co-housing in their own area? Our web address is cohousinglkld.com, and it's under Friends and Neighbors Co-Housing in Lakeland. There's a wonderful organization called Co-Housing US, and it's a nonprofit, very successful. They uh, help people learn all about resources for co-housing. Is that cohousing.org? Yes. And then the other one is the one, I'm actually the president of this board, and it's called SAGE, Senior Co-Housing Advocates, because what we're trying to do is help people find senior co-housing. If they want to move into an existing community, learn how to build one, and what makes senior co-housing special and different. So there's SAGE senior co-housing advocates also. And then there are these wonderful books. There's a brand new uh, DVD uh, movie called The Best of Both Worlds, which is a wonderful description. I was thinking about the title of this new movie, The Best of Both Worlds, because Best of Both Worlds in my head means there are always going to be people that are asking, how do I get privacy if I'm in co-housing? I don't want to be around people all the time. Co-housing is the best of both worlds because everything is designed architecturally to give you the privacy that you need and the social engagement that you want. Everything, your own private home is built that way, your community is built that way. So it is the best of both worlds. And so there's those organizations, the uh, wonderful movie, The Best of Both Worlds. There's a brand new book called State of the Art Co-Housing. There's a book that's been around for a long time called The Senior Co-Housing Handbook, uh, written by Chuck Durrett. So I will share this information with you that you can share on your website. That's great. So all of those things that Gail just mentioned will be available in the show notes. You can find show notes for episode nine at sageaging.us and just find episode nine and you'll find all of the show notes complete with all of these links right there to make easy access for you. 
Gail, thank you so much for joining me today. You have really shed some light on the whole concept of co-housing and specifically the concept of senior co-housing. And I believe that it's something that has a lot of legs and really could take hold given the fact that things are changing so drastically demographically. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time. I had a great time. This is wonderful. You're doing such a wonderful with Elder Care Guide and with this podcast. is It's so perfect. So thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening. If you found value in today's conversation, I'd really appreciate it if you would click subscribe now and share this Age Aging podcast with a friend. If you have a topic idea that you'd like to share, We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at sageaging.us.